invite you to turn with me to the uh, book of Acts, chapter 15. Uh, We'll be walking through that passage that was uh, just read for us a few moments ago. Acts, chapter 15, is full of conflict, and you're probably thinking, great, don't have enough of that in my life. But we see here that conflict, which is couched in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, results in kingdom growth. But again, if you're like me, you're just plain tired of conflict. I mean, every channel you turn to, every site you open up has conflict in politics regarding race. Blood pressure tends to rise as we open up our Facebook, as we read comments sections. We're tired of sharp conflicts regarding response to the pandemic. Divided from neighbor and family, often brother and sister in Christ. If you're like me, you're tired of being conflicted even within ourselves. How to navigate life, relationships, work and play. Our bodies seem to be in conflict as we ache each morning. We live in a fallen world and life can feel like we are fighting this long and inevitable defeat. And conflict is at the center of all of this, but yet we, we live in a world that is girded up and wrapped in grace. And so we have to trust that, that God is over all of these things and that He indeed uses conflict, which is couched in grace, to build His kingdom. And that's where we're at in Acts chapter 15 this morning. We see God building His kingdom through conflict. So as we dive in, would you join me with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you for honest transparency that is your word. You don't hide conflict. You don't hide the mess that is following Jesus. And so we give ourselves to you as we hear your word. Would you conform us more to the image of your dear son, that we might depart from this place as light for your kingdom. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 15. Uh, begin thinking about what Bono from the group U2 says. He has a, a line that says, hey, grace, grace makes beauty out of ugly things. This chapter, there's some ugly things going on. And we trust that God is, through His grace, making beauty out of the ugly. There's some ugly conflict, but through it, God purifies and He grows His church. To go back two or three chapters in Acts 13 and 14... Luke is recording beauty and glory as Paul and Barnabas travel the world, so to speak, on their first missionary journey. Lives are transformed, the gospel is proclaimed freely, boldly, and the church grows. But as we turn to chapter 15, we see there's something rotten in Denmark. Chapter 15, verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. This question is, do do you have to be circumcised to be saved? Do you have to become Jewish to follow Jesus? Well, Antioch is where Paul and Barnabas made their home base. That they got on a circle and in a missionary journey, they came back about 300 miles north of Jerusalem to Antioch in Syria. And it says, having remained there no little time, we don't know how long, but they've been there a little while. 
They've been testifying to God's work amongst the, the Gentiles, amongst the nations, the non-Jews, who are now coming to follow Jesus. Well, some from Judea, presumably Jerusalem, have come down, descended the lower altitude there to Antioch, and they're preaching or teaching a new doctrine, or a doctrine that says this, conformity to Moses' law is necessary to share in the life of Christ. Circumcision is necessary to share in the life of the church. So in some ways, it's a question of belonging, of unity. Can Jew and Gentile live together? Can Jew and Gentile worship together as one family in Christ? This conflict is a similar one anyway, is recorded in Galatians chapter 2. Peter at that time was in Antioch with Paul and, and Barnabas there when brothers from Jerusalem came up and started to teach that you must be circumcised to follow Jesus. Barnabas falls prey to it. Peter falls prey to this fear of this party, this circumcision party, and Peter withdraws from the Gentiles, distances himself, and Barnabas follows suit. There's a racial divide in Antioch, in the Antioch church, and Paul rebukes Peter and Barnabas harshly. Something like that's going on or being referenced here in Acts chapter 15. So, a delegation from Antioch, 300 miles away, is now sent down to the church in Jerusalem. And in that church in Jerusalem, there is a debate. The question being, do all need to be circumcised? Do all need to obey the law of Moses, which Jews hold so dear? Do they need to obey everything there to follow Jesus? Verses 4 and 5 when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This Pharisaic legalism that just saturates the gospel accounts and Jesus wrestling with the Pharisees, it's plaguing the Jerusalem church here. It somehow infiltrates the church. Now, there could be a lot of laws that this, party, this Pharisee party could hold before them, a lot of different laws before Gentiles. So when circumcision becomes the central issue here, you've got to kind of wonder, well, what's going on with circumcision that becomes so important that they think Gentiles have to be circumcised? It has to do with identity, doesn't it? At the core of who we are. You have to identify with a particular people group in order to follow Jesus is the charge or the claim. See, faithful Jews have been aligning themselves with Jesus now. And many have been endeavoring their whole life to follow or observe Jew Jewish law, Mosaic law. And now as they're following Jesus, they're having to wrestle with, well, what does that mean for following the law? There's a lot of cultural things tied into it, social things tied into it, theological reasons. Some who have now turned to Jesus have served as Pharisees before. And they believe that anyone who aligns themselves with Jesus must also align themselves entirely with the law of Moses. And the conflict here gets ugly. But grace makes beauty out of those ugly things. See, all parties involved are praising God because the gospel is advancing. But not all are agreed in how we move forward in that advancement as Jew and Gentile. 
Is circumcision or observance to the Mosaic law entirely, is that needed? Is that necessary to follow Jesus? Well, look who speaks up first. Is anybody surprised? It's Peter, right? Peter's always up first to talk. And so he stands up, verse 7 and following. After that, there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? There's no burden except grace. Now, if you've tried these complex fad diets from time to time, or if you've got onto some you know, really rigid exercise uh, regimen there, or if you've been beaten down by religious uh, ritual at times, like you know what it is to be under a yoke. A yoke that starts out with a healthy thing in mind, and it becomes a burden that almost crushes a person. Peter is saying, look, we've all fallen. We've all been crushed by the burden that we've placed on the law of Moses. And look, Peter's saying, I've gone to the Gentiles, and they've been converted. They've come to Jesus without circumcision, and they're bearing fruit. They've been given the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying, what? What does he say? Verse 11. He's saying, basically, hey, legalism's going to kill, but grace is going to give life. Verse 11, Peter says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. We're going to be saved by the grace of of Jesus. As we examine the conflict in chapter 15 here, Peter is hoping to couch this conflict and these hard decisions in, in the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and the gra- when we say grace, it's, it, it's not a term that uh, means that we have to soften reason and, and debate. It doesn't mean that we silence dialogue, but, but talking about grace, putting it central here, is, it's a pointer that salvation is a gift of God. It's not something earned. It's not something unique to one particular people group. That grace is central even in conflict. And Peter has other supporters in his corner, verse 12. All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas are recounting God's grace amongst the farthest reaches of the regions in which they were sent. Where all ages and demographics submit to Christ. And no yoke of circumcision was required for the Spirit to be given and lives to be transformed. I want to reiterate, the council here isn't deciding whether the law is good or bad, whether we should obey laws or not. They're asking the question, what is necessary to follow Jesus? Because Jesus himself gives law. Jesus himself gives command, and it is good. Paul and Barnabas are bearing witness that the Spirit is moving. The Spirit is converting Gentiles to follow, become followers of Jesus, and God is not requiring of them circumcision. Peter has spoken up, Barnabas and Paul, and now a certain James speaks up. Verse 13, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. 
just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is James, the brother of Jesus, most likely, who's become a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, and he too stands to speak. And while Peter, Paul, and Barnabas have talked about what God is doing amongst the nations recently, James, he points them back to their Old Testament scriptures, and he says, look at Amos. Remember what Amos said? Verse 16 and 17, after this I will return. He says that all the Gentiles who are called by my name. James is pointing back to the prophet Amos to bear witness that God's plan always included the Gentiles coming into his kingdom. When Amos says after this, the this is referring to God's destruction of a rebellious nation of Israel. But Amos is saying, God is saying through Amos that after I destroy you, I will rebuild my people, and it will be through the Gentiles. So James is standing up and saying, what you're seeing with Peter, what you're seeing with Paul and and Barnabas, that is God rebuilding his people through the Gentiles. And James is just simply asking, are we ones to stop that from happening? Are we to put yokes upon those who would come to Jesus? Verse 19 and 20. Therefore, says James, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from sexual immorality, from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. To not trouble the Gentiles. James is saying we should not trouble the Gentiles. He's saying we should not require of them utter obedience to the Mosaic form of the law or to circumcision. James reiterates uh, Peter's point. He says, we will be saved by grace or through grace just as the non-Jews will. So there's this racial thing going on between Jews and non-Jews. It's very common, right? And so what's it, but, but Peter is saying, or James is now saying, like, we don't have to, ha- the non-Jews do not have to be circumcised or follow the law of Moses the way that we have prior to the coming of Jesus. Again, none of these pillars, James, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, are advocating lawlessness. Grace is not opposed to the law any more than speed limits are forbidding courtesy on the road. But why does James commend these stipulations when he says, what's he abstained from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, things that have been strangled, and from blood? Do you wonder, does that, can you kind of wonder why that's there? I thought we said we don't have to follow the Mosaic law. Why are these things here then? Are we making a new law? Well, it seems to me the issues that James outlines here have to do with pagan ritual. The Gentiles who would have been steeped in worship of false gods would have been participating in the sexual immorality as a form of worship, a thing strangled or devoted to idols. And it seems to me what James is saying here, if you're going to align yourself with Jesus, you've got to do it completely. You cannot still hold to the forms of worship of other gods. Jesus is the one true living and only God. So the stipulations that they send back to the Gentiles up in Antioch, now followers of Jesus, is saying, basically, avoid ritual worship of false gods. You bow now before the one true king. 
as we read it, it's hard to feel the intensity and the, of the conflict and the pain that would have been involved. It's hard to see the racial divide between Jew and Gentile here. But this is what is going on here. I mean, they're, 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 the, the conflict strikes at the very core of these individuals and of these groups. Worship and identity are at stake in this conflict. Who are we and how will we worship? That's what they are asking of themselves in this uh, council. And conflict on these issues creates ugly where unity and beauty should reside. And the conflict was difficult, and conflict damages relationships. But as we see here, this conflict was also necessary to resolve the issues. It's interesting. If you look at the book of Acts as a whole, this chapter falls right in the middle. It's a hinge almost. Because the church has to figure out how are we going to live with those who are not Jewish. Now that we're following Jesus, what does that mean for us? Here at the middle of Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles, there is conflict. It should tell us something about what we should expect out of life, I think. And this conflict is couched in grace. That beauty might be created and fruit might result. Now, there are people in our lives that really enjoy conflict or seem to just seek conflict out. And those people are often not very healthy. Sometimes we can all fall into that trap. But the reality is conflict will come. It will surely come. The fact that it's at the middle of the Acts of the Apostles should tell us we will expect it, not only out in the world, in our own lives, but in in the church. It will surely come, and we can try to avoid it. We can try to diminish or deny it, or we can deal with it. And here we have modeled for us a pattern of conflict couched in grace. It's interesting also that just about a paragraph after this conflict, there's another conflict. Paul and Barnabas split. But again, the end result of that sharp disagreement is that the the missionary effort was multiplied and God grows His church. What do we glean from Acts chapter 15? What do we glean from this conflict? I love that the Bible's transparent. It doesn't hide or tuck under the rug conflict because this is part of the life of the church. I think first we see that identity, asking about circumcision here, identity is at root. Identity is first rooted first and foremost in the person and work of Jesus Christ. To build any identity apart from Christ or other than Christ or plus Christ is to build house on a sand. See, for those Pharisees, those Jews who had followed the law so faithfully, Their identity remained Jewish even as they followed Jesus so that things like circumcision and obedience to the law became almost superseding Jesus. Paul or Peter and Barnabas were even tugged that way in Antioch. The the irony as they talk about circumcision is that circumcision for the Jews was always a mark in the flesh that was to remind them that we are not our own, that we are without power or impotence cut off from rebellion and sin. The Jews were to give themselves to God and to neighbor, but instead circumcision became a source of pride, a badge of honor, a mark of association regardless of how one chose to live their life so that those without the mark became at best second-class citizens or objects of defilement. 
But as they're wrestling with this, this issue of circumcision, it's not just enough to, to cut off the item or the issue of circumcision. It's got to be replaced by something, right? It's not enough to say, no, it's not required. Well, they have to replace that, that ritual that, that with something else. And so the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus become the, 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 the identity of all who would follow Jesus. Washed in the waters of baptism, fed at the table of Christ, Life in the person of Christ is the uniting cornerstone upon which the church is built and draws in people from all nation, tribe, and tongue. So as we think about conflict, I mean, just think about how much, how much anxiety is caused in conflict because our identity seems to be at stake in the conflict, right? For example, we can, as we conflict with other people, it's like, I was right about that. How dare you question me? As if it really strikes at the core of who I am. Or my candidate is best. How could you even doubt that? And that becomes the core issue for my identity. It says, I can't believe that you don't care about this issue in the same way that I care about this issue. And it becomes very core to who we are. It does seem to be, if if we can isolate what causes anxiety, we tend to see what we're trying to build our lives upon. And so we think about within conflict, it does reveal idolatry. It does reveal what we build our lives upon outside of Christ. Patterns and devotion are, is our identity rooted in Christ above all else. So look, whatever causes anxiety and conflict, we can be pretty sure it's a bedrock upon which we seek to build our lives and our identity. What are we building our identity upon? Okay, so and if identity wasn't a big enough task to handle at this Jerusalem council, neither Jew nor Gentile, that division makes a difference, well, it also has to do with worship. Worship is at stake here, too. Every stipulation that James states to be sent on to delegates to Antioch sought to purify worship of that church and into the Gentile nations. So today, we continue to fight for purity of worship. First, within our own hearts, as we are ever lusting after other masters, ever manufacturing idols before which we bow, And we also, when necessary, fight within our world to purify the worship of the true and living God. And often we are at conflict with one another, conflict within the church. And we often fail or neglect to see others as bearing the image of Christ and we ourselves as his humble servants. I mean, look, conflict is painful. But as we examine this passage, I think we learn to trust God in conflict to walk with others patiently, to seek our best, to couch our conflict in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that we ourselves have been shown infinite grace when we have been in conflict with God and with one another. Ours is therefore to show grace towards one another. And we trust that God is in the conflict with us, that conflict isn't some time out from life, It's not merely a distraction from what really matters. It is the stuff that God uses to transform us and to grow us. And that growth will never happen if we continue to flee it. Here it is. At the base of this chapter, Jesus will grow his church. We, his people, will fail. We, his people, will hurt one another. We, his people, out in the world, will mar the name of of our holy God, and still, Jesus will grow his church. Since the fall of mankind into sin, we have been at odds with God, at odds with one another, 
and with all creation. And yet Christ entered into that cosmic conflict. And as he entered in, he laid down his very life that we might be reconciled to God and that we might be reconciled one to another, united with him one to another. Peter's word, his final word is one of grace. And he exhorts us in that speech saying, we're called into the family of God, being renewed by grace in the image of Christ. We are convicted and comforted by His Holy Spirit. And all of this is couched in the grace of our Lord through Jesus Christ. And it is only as we give ourselves to God and to one another in the grace of our Lord that these inevitable conflicts that are so painful and ugly will be turned in grace to beauty. Christ has fought the long defeat on our behalf, and He is one. We today continue to fight in His grace in order that Christ would continue to grow His church in our midst and throughout the world. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that You turn ugly into beauty. And we pray that as we go about our lives in this body, in our community, in our families, grant us courage and strength to uphold Your truth that we might shed mercy and love on those around us, that we might couch all of our life in the grace of Jesus Christ. We are so grateful that you have called us unto yourself. We are yours. Do with us as you see fit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray all of these things. Amen.